Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Heidi Hauser, Assistant Professor of History at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama, to talk about her new book, The Malleable Body, Surgeons, Artisans, and Amputees in Early Modern Germany, out this year, that's 2023, with the University of Manchester Press. Hey, Heidi, welcome to the program. Oh, hey, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I am so happy to talk to you about this book. So cool. How are you today? Uh, doing very well. Um, great, pretty day outside. Fabulous. Managing the heat. As, as, which, as can, can we talk about anything with the heat in the summer? The answer is no. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. All right. So my first job is I want to situate this work in your kind of intellectual trajectory. So if I'm not mistaken, this comes out of your dissertation? Yes. Yes, it does. So um, essentially, the when I got to the very end of working on the dissertation, literally, I was writing the conclusion of it. I had a kind of a light bulb moment where I had been working uh, on a dissertation that had been looking at amputation and thinking about these mechanical hand artifacts from the 16th century. And, uh, and it wasn't until I was writing the conclusion of the dissertation that I was thinking, oh, goodness, I think that this is actually pointing towards the meaning of this is pointing towards signs of this greater change. And I want to figure out what the meaning of this change is exactly. What is this change that I'm finding? Uh, and that was actually the beginning of this book. Um, so it's built on research from the dissertation, but the, the book started with a light bulb moment when I finished the dissertation, uh, and then I ran from there. Um, you know, got a little, little good, a little bad in that. It would have been nice, probably, to have that light bulb moment in the introduction, but whatever. Sure. Oh, yeah, I know, but that's always the way I think, or maybe it's always the way for me. <laughs> um, I, I think most well, and I think most people actually aren't very happy or. They may be happy with their finished product, but they know there's still work to do anyway. So, fair enough. 
Um, which actually makes me wonder how you came to work on the history of medicine, but really amputees. What brought you? What drew you to amputees? Um, so I mean, it was a it was a winding road kind of experience. Uh, I definitely didn't set out um, to to look at this topic or to focus on amputees in particular. Um, I had actually been drawn to uh, it was epidemiology, actually, um, the the sort of idea of the French disease in early, in early modern Germany. So the French disease is this, uh, it's, it has a very complicated historiography um, where historians have argued back and forth on whether or not it is connected to or is syphilis or a predecessor of syphilis or was it always in Europe or was it not? But in at the last decade of the 15th century, there's this outbreak of this disease that was very scary, that went through people very quickly in a very, in a way that shocked people and frightened people, particularly because it involved, you know, putrefying body parts. Um, and it was really virulent and it moved really fast. And so in see, early modern Europeans, at least, it's this new disease and they were trying to define it and um, explain it, cope with it, figure out how to treat people who were experiencing it and, and all of that. And I was looking at surgical treatises on the French disease and, and how uh, early moderns were talking about this as a new disease for them. And what I found that I was really drawn to were writings by not academic, like learned university physicians who had lots of detailed, complex astrological theories, but um, practicing barber surgeons who were actually in specialized pox houses treating people who were suffering and had all of these case histories about people that they were treating so you've got these very sort of human stories that were happening in the treatment of bodies while something they didn't understand was happening um and they were trying to understand and that that kind of story of um the body coming apart and being taken apart because of putrefaction that was actually happening during the disease and then the amputations that had to be performed and then what, what does one do after this happens? How does one manage the changes of the body? Um, both the how the surgeon is thinking about this, but um, also the, how the amputee is experiencing and thinking about this. That really, um, I, I guess, sort of got to me, if that makes sense. Like that really struck me and I found it very powerful. And, uh, and so I moved beyond actually thinking about the French disease specifically and more into this sort of larger issue of the challenge of surgically taking the body apart and, and then the bigger sort of process of what were early modern Europeans doing in the, or particularly in early modern Germany of what does one do after that happens in terms of managing a new body shape, essentially. Um, so it was a, it was not a, a straight route, so to speak. It was one that happened by following sources and following stories. Right. Yeah. So speaking of um, your stories and your sources, so we've got case histories, which you just mentioned, and medical treatises. Um, what other kind of sources are you looking at? Um, so I have, uh, I think about my source base as being of two kinds, um, written sources and artifacts. So right, the written sources are um, surgical treatises, and that includes everything from um, textbooks and examination treatises that are even written as question and answer format to the young surgeon. And those are those are in sometimes just hilarious to read because you sort of like you kind of get to go into the shoes of a, a very a young aspiring barber surgeon 
and you get asked the question of, for, for example, for the book, and this is not a funny question, but a question of like, so, um, you know, why do so many people die when you cut off their leg? Quite you question, answer, and it literally says answer, colon. And then it gives you a very like a two or three sentence answer, right? Where they're just very quickly and succinctly going, why does this bad thing happen when I do this to someone? Answer in two sentences, you know, and it will say something. You know, it's just very, so I mean, there are things like that. There are all kinds of specialized treatises, giant compendiums um, of, uh, you know, general surgeries and things like that. And it also includes, um, you mentioned, uh, correspondences uh, of surgeons, uh, some surgeons who are writing to others. So you have letters, people talking about specific cases as they're happening. Um, so there's a chapter that that has a correspondence going on between a surgeon and a physician and the physician's writing as he's treating a patient. I'm dealing with a patient right now who keeps saying he's feeling pain in the leg that I already cut off. I'm not sure what this means. What do you think this means? And then you have the, you know, the surgeon who's getting the letters writing back and he published the both sides of the conversation. So things like that, the written sources. Um, and then the artifacts, the other the other side of the floor space. Um, so this was this came from trying to tell the sort of full arc of taking the body apart and putting it back together. Those all of that surgical literature I mentioned is very quiet about the what happens after the procedure, and uh, one of the sources that we have, one of our most you know telling sources that we haven't used in historical monographs, um, are actually surviving artifacts of prostheses that amputees had made themselves. So um, they are the ones that survive, and the one that's uh, focused on in the book. Um, are mechanical hands, which was a new kind of prosthetic technology. So the material culture source base is, um, in the book, it's roughly, there are 12 that I focus specifically on in the book. There are about 35 from early modern Europe that I'm aware of that existed or that we had record of at some point from anywhere in Europe. Um, and anyway, and so these are these are held at museums. Um, some of them are in storage facilities. Some of them are on display with armor exhibits. Some of them are in personal collections because um, they've been passed down from generation to generation in baronial families in Germany. Um, and uh, they make up this other important part of the source base of trying to sort of get at the story of a response to a traumatic, sudden, major bodily. Okay. Yeah. Your introduction, you discussed the autobiography of a German knight, Gutz von Berlin, Berlickingen. I should be better at that. Yeah, there we are. Um, it's, that, was, that was the Dutch pronunciation you just heard. Uh, okay. Berlin, Berlisch. Yeah. The, anyway, um, also known as Gutz of the Iron Hand, which is such a great nickname, right? Who does not want to do that? Yeah. Um, aside from the obvious, the the iron hand what what was your why did you start here so um it, it was sort of a sir it's been relishing in autobiography it was a natural place to sort of start the story because in the context of early modern germany so we're talking you know the, the book covers between 1500 and 1700 in that period uh, Goetz has become the most sort of famous amputee knight of that period that we know of now and he became so um, because he wrote and he, at the time that his autobiography was written, um, he was elderly and blind. So he actually dictated it to a scribe who wrote it. And it was written 
um, during his lifetime. Uh, it circulated in manuscript form. Uh, it was um, uh, published in the 18th century in print for the first time. And um, Goethe, the very famous playwright, Goethe gets a hold of it and writes a play based on it, drawn from it. Um, Goethe's, you know, Run Merlishing in the Dies in the Hand, like the, you know, this this very famous play that makes Berlishing in the superstar, essentially, in Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, there are two artifacts that are associated with him um, that he supposedly had commissioned in war during his lifetime and that are on display in the uh, ancestral castle of the Berlishingen family in Yachshausen. Um, so we have a firsthand account of an amputee, which is incredibly rare in the early modern period. So we have someone who talks about their injury and the essentially this sort of moment in the uh, in the sickbed of just despair of, you know, I'm not going to be able to fight anymore. I am worthless as a soldier. God, please let me die, essentially. And he, and we have these words and it's something very powerful and very, again, rare to find um, a source that says that directly. Uh, and then he talks about, and then he had this idea, well, if he just had some help from God, you know, maybe, maybe in the form of an iron hand that, you know, he could, he could go back on the battlefield and fight another day. Um, so we have that sort of written account, and then we have these two artifacts associated with him as well. So the sort of the sort of written and material culture areas are there, and it sort of opens up the story both temporally. So we're at the beginning of the 16th century when I say I argue that this transformation and perceptions of the body and practices around taking it apart and putting it back together is beginning to happen. We have it in an amputee's own and. In, in, this amputee's own words, which is very rare. Um, and in the particular context that I'm focusing on in early modern Germany, um, one really can't talk about an iron hand without mentioning goods. Um, in fact, when I was going and researching the, the artifacts in my source base, um, this would include going to different museums, some of them very tiny, uh, and sometimes taking them taking them out of their cases and photographing them where uh, while the museum was still open and people were going through and just looking for the museum laurel and i and i actually had um germans approach me and ask me as i was photographing was this goethe's hand is that what you're looking at i'm like oh no, no this is a different one it's different someone else someone else's we don't know who wore this one so it's sort of like a you know, it, it was a very natural place to open the story within the historical context that I'm, I'm really focused on for all kinds of reasons. Makes perfect sense. It really does. It speaks to what you want to talk about. It's a great introduction to what the book's going to be. Um, it's also that's so rare to have a source, like a nice like source telling you these questions. You know, you spend so much time thinking, like, why won't you say what I want to hear? And he does. <laughs> magic yeah i was he doesn't say everything that you want to hear like for all the things that you want to hear one of the things for example in my case is um so we we hear about what's happening on you know in his, in his sick bed and it's a very stylized presentation as well so it's you know there's very but for the most part the autobiography and in keeping with um how we find written sources uh, you know, of uh, people who are any kind of firsthand accounts of people who experienced a bodily injury like this, um, like an amputation, tend to downplay the physical injury for different reasons um, that, that we studied. 
And he does downplay it and differ. So we have this very powerful moment on the sickbed. And then the rest of the autobiography, like he doesn't mention. And then I went and talked to this blacksmith and I had this hand commissioned and started using it. He never says anything like that. He like mentions it, I think, twice, uh, maybe one, like once or twice, maybe. And it like, and it, it's in passing. So like there's one time he has to stop by a blacksmith's shop to get the hand fixed because he says my iron hand is broken. But he never mentioned getting it commissioned in the first place, right? So like, so it's for all of the, it's it's a great source. And even that source doesn't tell you everything you want, right? So you've got to like, there are puzzle pieces that you sort of have to put together and create this mosaic of like, what is going on? Because no one source covers it all. Well, no, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, right? You're like, I mean, what if it did? What if it did? Oh, you know, it's not real, right? So for you, it actually did. Yeah, that's it. Then we would know. Um, okay. Um, so you've got like we've got this document um of this guy talking about his hand and and then you um you also you talk about um well, I'm not sure if these if they're going to be part of his story but vernacular surgeons. So there's. Yeah, all, all of them thinking about all the ways you kind of are triangulating around and you've got someone talking about their hand and then you've got vernacular surgeons who are talking about amputation. What are these? Who are these guys? So, okay, vernacular surgeons, it's a term that I'm introducing in the book. So I have to be sort of very clear that if, you know, you hear the term vernacular surgeon and you're thinking that I have not heard that term before. It's it's, it's not one that's used. Um, it's a term that uh, I'm introducing as a way to study these surgical treatises from the early modern period. So the early modern period, this is a time when we have the introduction of the printing press. So print is a new, um, uh, is a new, uh, you know, medium out there for people be to begin to circulate ideas more broadly than they were able to before. Uh, and so you have medical practitioners who didn't write down their practices or circulate their practices before who are taking advantage of the printing press because it's a way to get notoriety, it's a way to argue for one's social status and raise one's social status. They're taking advantage of that, as do many other kinds of um, crafts, people of the purity different crafts groups. So, so actual regular, you know, barber surgeons and surgeons, they're taking advantage of this new medium and they're actually printing about their works. So when we talk about uh, medical literature, surgical literature that's circulating in the printing press through this period, we have all kinds of literature that I mentioned, like the examination treatises, general surgeries, and all specialized tracts, all kinds of stuff. Um, but we have many, many different kinds of authors too. So you have your, you know, your learned anatomists who are universities and learned physicians whose job is really to do internal medicine of the body. Um, and then you, and they're right, and they write things about surgery. They're, everybody's writing about surgery. But the actual then practicing surgeons themselves are writing about surgery. And so when I use the term vernacular surgeon, I'm not talking about any kind of surgeon out there practicing. And I'm not talking about any kind of author writing about surgery. It's this um, it's this sort of uh, intersection when we're talking about somebody who is trained in a master apprentice system of surgical training rather than at university. So they had hands on practice learning it as a craft actually spent time in their career practicing surgery on human bodies and also wrote about and published treatises 
um, on surgery. So all of those sort of like checkbox have to be, or all of those boxes need to be checked for someone to sort of qualify as what I'm calling a vernacular surgeon. And the reason that I'm doing that uh, is because in trying to sort of understand ideas about um, practices, like practices on the ground, ideas about practices on the ground, perceptions of the body, it's important to differentiate the kinds of voices that you can hear in these surgical treatises and not to simply lump them all into sort of one group of, oh, medical authors were all saying this. Because there are actually distinctions between what some learned authors are saying and different uh, things being proposed by or suggested or suggestive um, things in uh, the works of practicing surgeons that will differ in different ways or be in dialogue with what learned um, learned authors are saying. So the vernacular surgeons are, it's important to be able to try to identify them as a group um, so that we're not just talking about sort of a lump of all medical literature is doing X. And also to acknowledge that this is a time where these everyday practitioners, um, and not and not every everyday practitioner is publishing. So they are vernacular surgeons are exceptional for actually publishing, um, but their perspective is closest to practices on the ground in terms of what it is that they're talking about. Um, it's most accessible to everyday practitioners who could read and buy cheap books about um, early modern surgery, um, and. Hearing sort of the, when looking at particularly, for example, amputation techniques, right, and different perspectives of how should one remove a part of the body, this is how one should do it, you can actually find uh, different directions of influence coming both sort of not only kind of geographically in different ways, um, but also culturally and uh, by these, um, by these different kind of intersecting, in some ways overlapping, but in other ways, separate spheres of academic and craft medicine. Um, and you can only kind of differentiate all of these things going on by differentiating like the authors that are actually speaking. So these vernacular surgeons, I argue, are a very important kind of author that we need to consider as a group and we haven't considered as a group um, to this point. Is it fair to just say that you're getting more practical information and less theoretical information? Is that the separation? Uh, not quite. Um, you do get a lot more practical information because that's their highest priority. I mean, so you do I, you do get more practical. Sometimes, actually, it's it's not as practical. It really depends because sometimes. So I'm just just reading. Um, one uh, vernacular surgeons. Uh, he has a just as a general surgery and. For the most part, it's just copying a medieval surgical treatise that was very popular and continued to circulate um, by uh, Guy de Choliac, um, that continued to circulate in the early modern period. Uh, but it's it's a and so in that one, you sort of you got practical information, but then you have other vernacular surgeons um, who include uh, a lot of case histories of what they've been doing, and they also while they draw from lots of surgical literature, also insert their own ideas and give you many different ways of doing of, of doing a particular procedure or something like that. And then they explain why. So, um, and they draw while they're drawing on a larger body of surgical literature because they're trying to kind of find their footing in a body of um, a, a corpus of medical knowledge that previously had been the domain of 
the university educated alone, right? So they're in finding that footing, a lot of them do draw from learned theories um, and are they participate in that uh, in the learned tradition of medical knowledge. Or they're trying. Some of them are trying to. Some of them like less successfully. Some of them more successfully. Uh, so there is a great range in vernacular surgeons' writings um, in terms of the the level of theory and practice, how much they engage with the learned tradition, um, how the learned tradition is becoming influenced by their perspective, and how their perspective is becoming influenced by the learned tradition. So there's a some very interesting things happening in surgical literature in this period that we can watch happen through the circulation of these texts as these authors talk to each other. And something we're just not able to see earlier, right? But- Right, right. With the la- with right, with, um, I mean, a lot of this is made possible by, um, by the printing press. So, in medieval surgical treatises, um, that the ones that were influential and that survive are written by learned practitioners. Many of them are incredibly influential through the early modern period too. So, medieval literature continues to be influential, um, but we also have new voices popping up that we haven't heard before. Not as though those voices made not have existed before, but we actually have evidence of them um, because of these publications. That's why the early modern era is so cool to study. Um, oh, I would think so. Yes, I agree. So, 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 so say two early modernists. Um, so, I, so uh, the thing I want to talk about in uh, the next in chapter two, you talk about the Heisebrand and the Kaltebrand. And um, what it tell us, oh God, tell our audience about this. Oh gosh. Okay. So when I, when I mentioned that I was real, um, I found it very striking when I was for, how did I get drawn to this project? Is this trying to sort of understand, uh, like putrefaction in the body in the early modern period and how early moderns understood it and how their surgeons are working with patients and how patients and their families are dealing with the situation and how their understanding was happening in their body. It's, very compelling because it's it is uh not what i expected so there's a there's a language of talking about the process of death and dying in an isolated part of the body that comes through through these terms um the high brand the hot fire the cult brand the cold fire so they talk about the hot and cold fires which is those terms in and of themselves still give me like goosebumps um because they they convey a lot about the condition that the early modern Europeans are talking about. So the the Heisebrand, um, the hot fire, is when we're talking about the beginning of putrefaction in the body, that where we have symptoms like something, um, a, a hand starts to swell and gets very red. There are different kinds of symptoms attached to it. It's the, the soft parts of the body that are being affected. And the surgeon's watching this. And the surgeon knows that that sort of death is starting, the the vital spirit within that part of the body is starting to ebb and different things need to be done to reverse course. You can still save the body at this point, right? And they have different techniques that they use, including there's lots of different kinds of bloodletting and making little cuts and cupping and um, all putting all kinds of poultices. And and again, there's a, there are internal medicines, things that they're telling them to eat and drink and managing their, um, their regimen, sort of, sort of diet and regimen, things like that. So you can try to reverse course and, uh, you know, and the, the beginning putrefaction, and it can be caused by any number of things. Like they talk about 
the, you know, the bite of a, a mad dog to, you know, the bite of a horse to somebody, they could, there's a case history of someone who gets um, the fire in their hand because when they, during a, there was like a fist fight and he, the guy stuck his hand in the other guy's mouth and was pulling on the guy's beard. And the guy who's like, the thumb gets bit while he has his hand stuck in the guy's mouth during it. And so, and the surgeon is telling you, it's like, it's one of the case histories of one of the vernacular surgeons that I look at. Um, you know, where there's this, you cannot make these stories up, right? But they also talk about things like extreme cold, you know, as a, so essentially what we would write, cold, like frostbite or something, things like that. You know, they talk about all, all kinds of things. Um, somebody is just walking, uh, like a, a woman in Ulm is just sort of walking and they walk by the eaves of a house and a sack of flour falls on her leg. Like, it's so it's, it can be caused by all kinds of, like, in, all kinds of things. Analysis. So you have this beginning putrefaction of soft tissues of the body. It has these different kinds of symptoms. You can try to reverse it. Um, but if you can't, it can turn into the cold fire. And also sometimes the cold fire can just arise by itself. But if the hot fire turns into the cold fire, that means that you've you've passed the point of no return. Um, you've sort of like where the surgeon's perspective shifts from trying to save us that part of the body to needing to save the rest of the body. You have to get rid of that part of the body. They the surgeons no longer consider it a part of the body anymore. Um, they liken it to um, like a oh they use all kinds of phrases. It's like it's like if you have to extract a bullet out of the flesh or something and they or there's a dead fetus in the womb or like a tumor or they refer to all kinds of things where it's just it's not a part of the body anymore and you kind of get the sense that the reason that they are describing it in all these kinds of ways is to try to as they're they're insisting to the reader that the reader needs to make that mental shift themselves as they're looking at a hand or a foot or a leg or something like that they need to make that mental switch themselves to understand it may look like it's part of the body, but it's not, and you have to remove it. And the cold, so the cold fire, and they're calling these fires because they spread if you don't stop them, right? The fire keeps moving, and the hot fire is very painful, like it feels like burning in pain. The cold fire um, is when pain ceases, and it's when this putrefaction goes past the soft tissues and reaches the bone. And when it reaches the bone, that's when you know you know, you're in trouble. If it's the superficial part of the bone, you can still maybe do some shaving of the bone and lots of things that we wouldn't want to have done to us today, but, um, or we wouldn't have wanted to have done to us today in the way in which they were done in the early modern period. Let's say that. But when it reaches the marrow of the bone, when you, and you lose sensitivity in a limb, so it becomes spongy to the touch, it's cold. It has, it can, and, and the sort of warning signs are when you start to get striations and you start to get black spots and things like that. Then you have to remove, you have to just remove the limb. There's nothing one can do. And so this hot and cold fire, this it's a it in and of itself is a story of of the beginning, the beginning of dying and then of death, and then of a final death, essentially, of a of a part of the body. Is it's in and of itself just a fascinating jump into the perspective of medical practitioners of that period and how they understood what was going on. And all of the social things involved in it, trying to explain this to patients and family and friends and pastors about what medically they understood was going on in a body. 
Yeah, and what the what a body actually is. I mean, you ask the question: Is it a material entity to be preserved at all costs? Is it your body, or is it a machine, and you can replace the parts of it? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, well, and this was um this was a surprise that I when I was doing um, research for the project, and, and that is how the project came to be focused more specifically on uh, amputation and what comes after amputation and the development of prostheses. Because the, I, the conversations that were being had around it in the early modern period were so rich and so fascinating. Um, and particularly that question of, you know, is it a material entity where we need to preserve all of it at all costs? So if you have to remove something, you only remove what is absolutely necessary. You at all costs preserve everything that is living. Um, you know, that's particularly something that is um, uh, proponents um of uh sort of the learned a learned tradition of hippocratic Hellenic medicine are really advocating for that's kind of their position for a long time and that that kind of remains and like when we talk about why do we need to kind of discern different voices in the literature and so why are vernacular surgeons important well one of the things that you see is that learned surgeons are really kind of proposing the material entity kind of thing. Well, I mean, they're very much, you know, for the most part, and this shifts in different ways over time, and there are competing voices in different ways. But what's so interesting is that it's the vernacular surgeons, the ones that, you know, are coming not from a learned tradition, but from a craft tradition who are practicing. They're the ones that begin to argue, and this is something you don't find in medieval the medieval literature, um, or the ancient literature that, you know, in terms of leg amputations, which was the most controversial amp- uh, amputation that one could do, um, right? It's, it, the placement, particularly on the legs, the most controversial, um, is that you needed to do it um, a hand's width below the knee. Like, that's where it should be done. And it should be done there, no matter, you know, if, if it's, no matter where it is, like, if you have to take off a foot, hand's width below the knee, because that's the best and most suitable place for a prosthesis. And so the patient can then use the leg easily afterwards. It's essentially arguing that the body is a vehicle of motion, that this is the surgeon's priority when they're undertaking the amputation. It's not to just preserve all healthy flesh, that the surgeon's responsibility is actually to ensure that the patient can use the limb um, you know, in, uh, in a way that is as close to as they could use it before the procedure. And for, you know, in terms of arguing placement of a prosthesis, that means hands with below me, which means you could be cutting off a lot of healthy flesh in order to create that ideal um, site to connect a prosthesis to. And that is a very, in terms of doing the research, it was, uh, that was an incredibly surprising element to find because they spoke of it as though this is, of course, what we do. And so you can't, you must wonder, because there isn't evidence of this in the written record, in the learned corpus of medical writing that's been passed down. Have craft surgeons been doing this for quite a long time, right? That they seem to think this is not a controversial thing that we're saying, of course you do it this way. Um, but the first time that we actually see it in writing uh, is in the 16th century, and it's coming from vernacular surgeons. And the vernacular surgeons convince a lot of learned surgeons, not all of them. There's a lot of disagreements about, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, preserving healthy flesh, creating an ideal site for a prosthesis. Like, what is, you know, what is the priority? 
um, there's a lot of controversy, but they sway a lot of learned, um, a lot of learned authors over to their side um, until by the end of the period that I study, uh, there are different surgeons who, um, in their writing, they talk about, well, you know, the ancients always amputated a hands with below the knee. And they're thinking of the ancients as though, like, this has always been done, right? This is like the before our time in memorial, like, this is how it was done. But now there's this other, and they'll say, but there's this other way now. And they don't, and, and it's like, they don't even realize, oh no, this is actually fairly recent that it's in the literature itself. But again, in terms of the connection between literature and practice, it's very, very complex. So how far back the hands with method actually was considered a reasonable thing that one did. Um, it's really hard to tell, but it's a fascinating thing that comes through the literature. And, and at, and I argue really what we're seeing in those arguments, um, is embedded in these technical instructions of surgeons are different visions of the body itself that, that that we are arguing about is this a material entity like is this a vehicle of motion can we reshape it should we reshape it and what does that mean about how we understand the body and also essentially what i call the human like this sort of the question of the human and what is surgery and surgeons responsibilities towards understanding the material body and understanding the human like and, and how that works in a procedure right its purpose where it exists where it ends right all these questions um we've talked a bunch about legs and i want to talk about hands um <laughs> hands you know well because i uh apparently i've watched one too many pirate films because i assumed there were only hooks and i can probably not alone in that that's an exaggeration only a little one um but no there's all kinds of stuff there so like talk to me about uh some pretty good replacement hands so i mean this was something that i was surprised about too uh when i went into this project i didn't have any i didn't have preconceived notions of exact of prostheses that were out there uh in and the, the first i mean when we're talking about these mechanical hands it's the development of, it's a new kind of prosthetic technology. They're, when we talk about them being mechanical hands, it's because they're, they can be passively operated. So you use your other hand or your other forearm, depending on what you, you know, pretending on what your limbs look like, to press down on the fingers from the outside and you press them through um, a series of springs and there are um, uh toothed wheels at the base of the fingers that catch in these different springs and lock them into place. So you press on them uh, and you can lock them and usually in multiple positions um, and including some of these when we're talking about the, the variety of mechanical hands out there. Some of them are so complex that they're articulated in every joint of every finger, which means the number of positions that you could theoretically lock it into is just enormous right very complicated um and then others are simpler where you know they're um only articulated at the base of the fingers um and but they they can be moved in pairs for example rather than just all four fingers at once some of them have stiff thumbs some of them have the thumbs move as well uh and you release them usually by there's a usually a release um, button at the top of the, the wrist or the bottom of the wrist of the mechanical hand that you would then press. And what that does is it uh, there's a release lever, it'll 
move the springs to release tension on the toothed wheels and the hand will pop back into a um uh into a, a full you know fully released state um yeah so there are these so it's a new kind of prosthetic technology that develops uh around at the turn of the 16th century is where we first find them some of them that survive and and one of the reasons the book focuses on them is i mean there are two reasons one of them is that they survive because they're made of this durable material most of them are made of metal some of them ha are are a combination of metal and other kinds of things um there's one really gorgeous sculpted wooden hand that has an iron arm casing on it um that's that's in the source space um but they survived and they survived for you know the durability of their materials so like one of them was found in a riverbed um it yeah it survived being in the water and being on you know in a riverbank for a long time um they survived because sometimes people were buried with them so one comes from a really well-preserved tomb for example um and then some of them survived because they were kept as keepsakes and families passed down from generation to generation um so, I mean, one of the things that that kind of indicates, uh, two of those three examples of how these survived, that we can still look at them, you know, suggests that we're looking at the um, sort of upper classes when we're talking about social status of the people that can, who commissioned and wore them. So for the large part, we're talking about upper classes of society. So they were considered prestigious objects. So they're, they survived is one reason why they're a major part of the source base. And then the other reason is that they made an impact on surgeons and how surgeons thought about amputation. Like surgeons talk about iron hands in passing in their treatises. They don't explain in detail about them. There's only one surgeon who does that. And that surgeon is actually presenting the words in terms of, um, of a blacksmith, uh, um, a locksmith um, in uh, Paris, actually. So it's not the surgeon's terms uh, himself. Um, but anyway, the so the surgeons, they don't quite, they're not on top of this technology. They're not making it themselves or designing it themselves, these mechanical hands. But they're impressed by it. And it, in, it influences what they think about in terms of when they talk about the amputation site of the upper limbs and they say it's easier to place an iron hand here, like so they mentioned iron hand, or they, when they talk about what recovery looks like, for an amputee, they'll mention, um, you know, being able to obtain an iron hand as a, you know, as a sign that one has, in their perspective, healed from a, a procedure and recovered from a procedure. So it makes an enormous impact on their thinking. So there's sort of um, a couple of reasons why these particular objects are sort of important for understanding um, the story in the early modern period. They survive and they and they had an impact and their source was not medical in the traditional way that we um, as historians have defined medicine or medical practitioners because they're commissioned by amputees. This is very much a um, uh, self-service kind of situation um, where, you know, an, an amputee was expected to, after, after the stump was healed, they were on their own. Uh, so any kind of way of managing the new body shape or of doing tasks, things like that, that was up to the amputee and the amputee's family to sort out on their own. This was not a medicalized sort of process, which means that these are these this new prosthetic technology, these amazing hands, some of which are painted, some of which are very simple, some of which are very ornate. Um, there are just there's a variety of them out there. 
uh, and beautiful pictures of them in the book, I should say, um, as well to sort of show what they look like so you can actually see. And also a couple of um, schematics of interiors so you can see what this insides with like technology look like. The source of this are the amputees themselves working with and commissioning artisans like locksmiths, clockmakers, blacksmiths um, to make these kinds of objects on an ad hoc basis because there's no craft group that just makes prostheses all the time. So you need to go out into the marketplace and find an artisan that you could work with for a, to commission a unique order just for you, personalized to what you want, which means that what these objects can do for us as historians is tell us a lot about, um, you know, what is it that the person commissioning it wanted to get out of this kind of a artificial supplement? What was important to them? What kind of things did they ask for? Um, and, and analyzing that, spending time kind of dwelling on that helps us get into the perspectives of amputees. And it's an elite group of amputees because we're talking about members of an upper class. So it's not representative of all amputees of the period. But to sort of get into their perspectives and how they shaped the perceptions of others around them. Um, and that is something that is a it's a very powerful thing that these objects can do that we don't have in written sources um, really in a, any comparable way. Sure. And some work that's a, a lot of work left to be done there, I would think. Oh, I think there's a, there is an enormous amount of work to be done. Like, so I mentioned I'm aware of about 35 objects in all of Europe. Um, and so I haven't seen all, they're not all in Germany or all related to Germany. So there are other, there, there are some in Italy, like there, there, there are some, I think in Denmark, like there are different areas of Europe to look at these objects. And I really hope other historians do, um, cause I think that will tell us a lot more about what's going on in the amputee experience, development of technology, how artisans are involved in healing, um, in ways that are unexpected. Uh, all of those kinds of things. Um, and then also just the objects themselves within Germany itself. More work to be done. I by no means claim to have done all the work there for sure. It's, that's It's really exciting. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I found very interesting as well is you're talking about all these stakeholders, right? And it's the amputee, their families, um, the and the vernacular surgeons. I love that. Right. I love that. Your vernacular particular. And and then there's learned there's this idea of the discourse and treatises, um, and then these artisans who seem to be like, well, if you cut it here, I can do this with that. Um, so it seems like the conversation is about what's going to happen with this person's body. It seems to be so much more of a community based effort than I would have thought. Yeah, that's one of the um, that's one of the things that I try to highlight through the book as it goes, like in each section. Is the the book is it's presented as uh, an arc of the body taken apart and put back together, you know, where we start with what are vernacular surgeons, but we move through, like, how do we understand a putrefying body, amputation, the, the um, healing afterwards, uh, these mechanical hands, and then prosthetic technology moving around. So it does that whole arc. And throughout the arc, I do try to highlight in different ways how we see that there's community involvement and how how this is interconnected with the community in all kinds of ways from you know the pastor being present when one is deciding on whether or not to amputate right to um uh to you know going into the marketplace and and commissioning an artificial limb um and having a surgeon go up to an artisan and this is um in particular um, Paris has a very famous treatise on artificial body parts that's very 
influential going up to uh, a, a locksmith um, in, in Paris and asking, can you tell me how you make these artificial hands? Like, so you have surgeons and, uh, you know, craftspeople having these conversations with each other um, as well. And, uh, and I mean, the connecting link uh, to all of these things of the community is the, the person of the, the patient who is being treated and, and if they survive the procedure, the amputee, um, they're the connecting link. Uh, and also one of great agency through the entire process, far more than what we see um, usually in medicine today. Wow. Wow. Cool. Hey, I've taken up enough of your time. So I have one more question. Very easy. What are you working on right now? Oh, so right now, actually, um, I am working with a mechanical engineer um, at, uh, at, at Auburn, and we are 3D printing. Uh, we have a prototype of one of the artifacts in my source space, the Cassell hand, um, so a, a 16th century um, iron mechanical hand. We're um, 3D printing it. And we're working on, um, I'm developing sort of a method of how we can responsibly and, and fruitfully um, run some experiments with it. Because that's one thing, you can go see these objects and you can, eat, some of them you can even operate and move around, but you can't actually use them to hold anything. They're very, very delicate. Um, so finding a way of, you know, how to explore this material culture even further and doing it in an interdisciplinary way um, with a mechanical engineer who works on wearable robotics and prosthetics, uh, which has been really just sort of an eye-opening experience. Um, so I'm currently sort of deep into that, uh, working, learning, learning about um, a lot of things that I have never thought about before um, in terms of wearable prosthetics, but with the idea that, um, like hoping that we can both make accessible like uh, the design of the the Cassell hand, one of these artifacts, like in a public way, so people could actually download a printable file, and if they have access to a three D printer, actually print and put together a sixteenth century mechanical hand for themselves to sort of see this technology in a way in person. So that's what I'm currently. That's the current project right now. That's on the front burner and going full steam. This is the best answer I've ever gotten to that question. This is insanely cool. Wow. And, you know, we talk about this interdisciplinarity, but like, wow, that's so cool. I, uh, I'm i really excited about it. And my um, co-investigator on the project, uh, so Chad Rose, mechanical engineer, fantastic to work with as well. So just shout out to how great he is um, working on this with me. But yeah, so hopefully, hopefully we'll have a file that we can post and that people can access if they'd like and print out their own 3D uh, printable mechanical hand. Yeah, we'll, I, we'll talk more about that. I want to talk until more about that. All right, but for now, that'll do. Uh, all right, listeners, this was Heidi Heiser talking about her new book, The Malleable Body, Surgeons, Artisans, and Amputees in Early Modern Germany, uh, out just this year, 2023. There's a link to the book on our website, but you can get it anywhere, anywhere you like. Um, and so finally, thanks again. Once again, thanks, Heidi. Thanks so much.